like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick and give my analysis of it. So in this episode, I'll be beginning uh, what will be like a two, maybe three-part series on... The Crack in Space. The Crack in Space was published in 1966, and it's part of that flurry of books published in the mid-60s, really beginning with The Man in the High Castle and, and you know, really not finishing up till Ubik and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. There was you know, 10, 12 books published in that period of time. The Crack in Space is, is one of those books that's probably not as well-liked and well-read. It does feel a bit like one of Dick's earlier works. It feels like it was maybe written in the 1950s. Some of the themes are a little bit more old-fashioned, especially when you've read books like The Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldridge, or even the, the second half of Lies Inc. We don't really have that psychedelic uh, drug culture stuff that you have in those mid-60s novels. You don't have a lot of the reality-bending stuff either, but this is still a really interesting novel. And it's one of the more useful political novels that are relevant to our time. Um, I think had Dick maybe not written exactly like like he did, there's some racial politics that are a bit dated in this book. There's um, some anthropology that's a bit dated. So it, it does feel like a book of the 1960s, but it also feels like a book that could have been written now in the sense, like the concern about the geranitocracy, the concern about the, the gap in wealth and power and opportunity between the old and the young, the global gap between opportunity for for white people and others. These, these the, the Malthusian questions, the question is, is there enough room on this planet for the number of people we have? And how do we respond to that? Do we respond that way to that by imposing more controls over reproduction or do we respond to that by really forcing people to abandon family for the greater interest of, of humanity. The zero population growth people today advocate certainly, yes, the earth doesn't have enough resources to sustain 10, 12 billion people. Others say, no, not at all. That's just neo-Malthusianism. And Dick, as I, as I suggested at various times in this podcast, I find very much an anti-Malthusian thinker. Yeah, it's not even his anti-abortion short story, The Pre-Persons, that makes me think that. I, I think there's a running theme throughout a lot of his works that this population question is a is really an extension of of political power and few novels make that as make that point as clearly as the crack in space which shows you both a, a world that doesn't need people anymore that's the majority of people aren't necessary um, but in the midst of plenty in the midst of, of total excess uh, a post-scarcity environment in which work is automated there's really no need for people we meet no one really who's doing any actual labor uh, there's repairmen in which in this suggests you, you, you don't even know why you would need because uh, you know pl- you know there's robot there's it's an artifact world nevertheless uh, despite those contradictions and and the fact that the novel itself you know seems a bit dated it seems a bit old-fashioned even for Dick's point from even Dick's works and yeah it's not one of his best but I think it's really interesting to read and I think it's one we should examine closely and not just 
not just pass over it on our way to get to more exciting stuff. I'm holding in my hand here, Now Wait for Last Year, one of my favorite novels from the 1960s. Um, but I'm going to wait on that and talk just about The Crack in Space. All right, so The Crack in Space. Uh, it's, a, it's a rather short novel, actually, but there's a lot going on here. Um, it was... It's, a, it's about, essentially about an, an overpopulated Earth facing a jobs crisis. Millions of people are left without work or hope of work, and they're placed in cryonic freeze until the economy improves. They become what are called bibs. And one of the central political concerns of this world is therefore what to do about this. Now, we need to point out that this quote-unquote bib problem is not a neutral. It's not just if you lose a job, you get thrown in there. It's something that targets the poor, the young, and the colored. So th this is not a post-racial world. Dick is drawing directly from his own experiences in the 1960s, the racial conflict of the time, the civil rights movement. And these are right in the back, right, not even on the back burner, they're right in the novel in the forefront. And the larger concerns of the novel, dealing with a alternate earth with a different timeline of history, goes right back to the questions of, of racial justice. And, and he even brings up questions of, of you know, marriage law, which was just being changed at the time this novel was written, where the final states that still had laws against blacks and whites marrying, those laws are being um, shut down. So anyways, in the, we have this crisis, though, even though it's not fairly inequitably implemented, it's still a crisis. And I think at the time, there's between 70 and 100 million people in cryonic freezing, freeze waiting, basically for eternity until a solution is found. Now, a solution, possible solution emerges early in the novel in the form of a second Earth. But when we learn that this planet is populated by descendants of Homo erectus, the politicians who, who hope to use this both for their political uh, um, advantage and to solve the bib problem, the, their hopes on that fade. So the novel explores questions of economic justice, political effectiveness, celebrity and scandal. There's also transhumanism, life-extending technology. And it's... It has, it's a very cyberpunkish novel in the sense that you have the kind of the, the people who benefit from technology and the people who are exploited and left behind by technology. The, the deep class bifurcations you see in cyberpunk literature is here. The, the oddity, the, the odd uses of technology to extend lives or to even uh, manipulate one's being. And also in the vision of a world not populated by homo sapiens but populated by an entirely differently species entirely different um, hominid species altogether opens up doors of more sustainable technologies which is something maybe not the cyberpunks are interested in but the solar punks now are interested in this question and i think i would urge solar punk fans to go and take a look at crack in space um maybe with a bit of a bit of a necessary jaded eye but there is Dick here is exploring tech, possible technologies not based on fossil fuels, not based on the internal combustion engine, not based on nuclear power. And it's it may be a bit unrealistic. Dick was not a technocrat. He didn't really have a technological bone in his body, but he at least has the imagination to imagine a world based on, on technologies where power comes from completely different areas. So it's it's an underrated novel to be sure, but I think it, to be sure, but it has some of his most important economic arguments. Uh, however, it does have classic moralism about sexuality and family, but even this is kind of fed back into his criticisms of class conflict and technology and economic justice. I think one of the weird things about this novel is one of the solutions to the population crisis is, is apparently a satellite brothel. So. 
I don't know. Dick must have known about birth control. I mean, it's that's even the zero population people at their most radical don't say the only solution is to funnel all male sexuality into sex workers. Um, and that's the only way to keep from babies from being born. I mean, certainly there was birth control. The I think Lyndon Johnson approved the pill for general use and like in 65 or 64 at some point. So, and it was long before that. So that's a bit of an odd thing that he doesn't even really have birth control. Birth control is not considered on the table in this issue in a novel population. But, and that, it's even in uh, Brave New World, right? Where people have the ability to control, to control and regulate their, their reproductive lives. So that's, that's odd. I don't know if that's just Dick's quirkiness here. But nevertheless, it's problems aside, this is a great book about class conflict, about technology, and about economic justice. And it's very relevant. The question of what do we do when an economy no longer needs the vast majority of its people? It's, a, it's an important question for us to ask. So uh, let's, let's look at the characters. Um, there's a lot in this short novel. It's a, it feels a bit crowded, to be honest. Um, the, the main character, so to speak, is, or the main characters hover around a man named Jim Briskin. Jim Briskin is a candidate for president of the United States. And if he wins, he'll be the first colored president. And there's this term that runs throughout the book, called, like I'll, I'd be the first called president, which usually means black. But I think Hispanics are included in that general term of colored. Um, and he's, although kind of a radical figure in that he's making promises to solve this permanent, permanently the bib problem, he also is very moralistic. And these often run into contradiction with one another. But his main goal at the start of the novel is to terraform another planet. And that is, that is his kind of utopian vision of how to solve the bib problem. But even he knows it's not really likely to, to happen. Now, his main advisor is Sal Haim, and actually Haim is closer to being the, the central character in the novel in a lot of ways. He's quite cynical compared to other advisors, and he wants Briskin to embrace the politics of reality a lot more. Uh, we meet Sal Haim's wife, Patricia, and like many of Dick's female characters, she's not really, she's kind of forgettable. It doesn't really have a strong uh, stay. She's often involved in political discussions, but mostly follows her husband's guidance. We have Phil Danville, who is Briskin's speechwriter, who embraces Briskin's idealism, but Sal Haim thinks he's a fool. Um, now, Tito Crivelli is another character who we may call a protagonist, a main character in the novel. He's a private investigator who works his way into the Briskin circle by directing knowledge his way. He's also kind of a, kind of a thug or a, a potential thug if, if Briskin needs one. Uh, he has been offered the job of attorney general under Briskin's administration. And then we have Bruno Mimi, Mini, who is a scientist devoting to the terraforming efforts. And Briskin wants to pull him out of retirement and get him to help him with this campaign promise to terraform other planets in the solar system and use that as the more practical solution to the big problem. Now, much of the plot of the novel surrounds other alternative solutions to the problem that, are, that pop up. So that's sort of one setting of the novel. Another setting is Pethel Jiffy Scuttler the Repair. Now, if you haven't read the story Precious... Uh, or no, Prominent Author. The story is called Prominent Author. You may not be familiar with Jiffy Scuttler. It's reintroduced in this novel. It's reused. This is a kind of a one-way teleporter. And this is actually the events of Prominent Author are mentioned in the, in the book briefly. So Darius Pethel owns a Jiffy Scuttler repair shop. And this becomes the center of global attention after one of the repair jobs reveals a portal to a parallel universe. 
he hopes to take advantage of this. Rick Erickson is the Jiffy Scuffler repairman, and he's one of the discoverers of this portal. And then you have Donald Headley, who's a Jiffy Scuffler repairman. He's married, but falls in love with a prostitute, Sparky Rivers. Another setting we have is the Dub Golden Door satellite. This is that uh, a, a, a satellite which filled with thousands of sex workers. And men just go there pretty regularly. There's not that much moral hesitation about it. It's seen as a solution to uh, the needs for sexual release in in to in a way that's not going to you know cause the population to go up. Again, this completely ignores, I think, the potential of of birth control, unless there's a subtext here that that somehow birth control is being prohibited. But there's no real suggestion of that. The central character here is George Walt, who we first learn is a kind of a post-human mutant, but later on we learn he's transhuman and that he's really technologically constructed. He's made of two separate consciousnesses and one conjoined body. So one is George and the other is Walt, and together his name is George Walt. They own the satellite brothel, and later on he plays a major role in the plot of the novel by posing as a wind god in an attempt to control the native population of this parallel earth that's discovered. Uh, we meet two prostitutes as well who work at the Golden Door, Sparky Rivers and Thisbe Olt. Thisbe Olt's the most interesting of these because she's an aging prostitute, but she looks young due to technology. So even sex workers can have their careers prolonged decades and decades thanks to technology. She's high ranking and very experienced. Um, another thread is with the Sands family. The Sands family, the, the main character there is a name, is a doctor named Lurton Sands. He's an organ translation, translation phys physician, world famous for his skill at prolonging life. He's in the middle of a scandalous divorce, and he's the first to learn of the parallel earth, which he uses to hide his mistress uh, to help him with his divorce hearings. He's also stealing organs from bibs to transplant into his aging patients. And part of the story comes into the moral argument of whether this is justifiable or not. His wife, Mira Sands, is, is an abortion counselor. She's the prime instigator of his legal troubles, and she eventually hires Tito Crivelli to find evidence of Lurton's misdeeds. And then Callie Vale is Lurton Sands' mistress. Um, we also then have uh, the, the Peaks. The Peaks are the Pomo Rectus, uh, the Peking man, essentially, people who live on this other planet. They're the ones who populated it because Homo sapiens never emerged. Uh, there's only a couple that are important to mention. One is Bill Smith, who's the first peak to talk to Homo sapiens through a translator. And then at the end, we meet a possibly mutated Peking man from parallel Earth who has supernatural powers, perhaps psychic powers, telekinetic powers, and above average intelligence for someone of his species. Um, in Terran Development, Terran Development is an agency in the government that wants to control this other planet to solve the big problem as well. Leon Turpin is the head of Terran Development, and this is a quasi-government agency that is hoping to organize extraterrestrial settlement. And then Frank Woodbine is an explorer hired by Terran Development who is eventually sent to explore the new Earth. So that's most of the main characters. We're also briefly introduced to a racist organization called Clean. Clean is basically devoted to opposing Jim Briskin's candidacy, even going so far as to try to assassinate him. And 
and then there's also like the president who Jim Briskin is running against and, and other minor characters. But that's that's really where the the tension is. It's between Jim Briskin's campaign, the the government's plans for this planet, and and then the the conflict that's going to emerge between the populations of these two planets. So I'll get into a thematic summer later on, but let me just, as usual, go through the plot of the novels. I'll, I'll look at, I guess, four or five chapters today. Okay, so chapter one. This opening scene is so memorable, and even if you don't read the rest of the novel, I think this opening scene sums up so much of what Dick's trying to say in this in this book. We meet a young Hispanic couple that have arrived at her Blackmore's counter at a bureaucratic office. They have decided to become bibs. They're, they're very young, they're poor, not very well educated. I think the girl is said to have like a, you know, like sixth six grade education or something. So there's not even, despite post-scarcity, there's a lot of poor people that don't have access to education. And I think that's the central kind of vulgarity in the novel is that in the midst of all this plenty and wealth, there's no room for even educating a lot of poor people because they're just not deemed economically relevant. And the hope is put them in a cryo until we find a planet to dump them on. It's just so brutal. Rather than creating a society that can accommodate the needs of, of poor people and, and people who maybe the economy doesn't need anymore. You know, instead of finding their value, they're just thrown away. So she's... They've decided to go. Now, becoming a bib is essentially to decide to potentially die because there's no guarantee you'll wake up in the future. It's, it's a risk. Um, but they can't find work, so they're forced to do this. The young woman confesses that she's about to have a baby. Now, Lackmore, realizing that this accounts for their decision, because if they were to have a baby, they'd be pushed off the dole. They would lose their government pension. And so that's why they want to save the baby. And the only way to do that is to become a bib. He says, no, well, I'm not going to allow this. You just go and have an abortion instead. And as they leave, Lackmore thinks about the dismal state of the labor market. And he reads a newspaper account of Lurton D. Sands' divorce scandal. Again, we have the media only cares about scandal. It's, it's very much like the modern media. All that wasted energy in following a scandal when there are real people who are suffering is another thing that Dick doesn't fail to remind us of in the opening pages. It, it, it's, it's a wonderful introduction to this book, and it, it's one reason I, I, I like it, actually. He seduced me with the first few pages, and the other problems with the book I tend to overlook because of that. So at a Jiffy Scuffler repair shop, Darius Pethel then reads about the oncoming presidential election, and this is going to result possibly in the first black president. He grumbles about the candidate, Jim Briskin, and his problem promised to solve the bib problem. Pethel thinks that somehow that he'll be forced to then just release the bibs into the world and this will make the job situation worse. He also thinks about Dr. Sands, who's a doctor specializing in organ replacement, and his wife Mira, an abortion counselor. And this all fits together because why is there such a bad population problem? Partially because people can stay around and live for as long as they want thanks to organ replacement. Where do the organs come from? Well, they come from bibs, who that Dr. Sands justifies, you know, saying they're just potential life at that point, so I might as well take their organ because I need someone now who needs them. And then we have his wife, Mira, who convinces young poor people not to have more kids. The whole population problem is summarized in this, this, these two characters in a way. 
Now, Pethel doesn't understand why Sans found a mistress when he could always just visit the Golden Door Moments of Bliss satellite, which is this orbiting brothel. He talks to his colleague Hadley um, about how morals have fallen too much and how the election of Briskin is inevitable, and partially because Briskin, not just because he's colored, and, and we're told the population is about to shift to majority black, majority colored. Um, so I, I'm not sure when that's supposed to happen in the United States. I know more children are non-white in the United States now being born. I don't know when the population will, will when whites will be a minority in the United States. But <clears throat> Dick's um, thinking about that uh, moment here uh, in the midst of the civil rights movement when this was written. So I, I think that that's something we got to remember when we come back to this is the context it was written in and, and uh, the, just the politics of civil rights surrounding it. But there's other thing about Briskin is that he's a moral conservative, right? And he's against things like the, the satellite. He's against uh, sexual promiscuity that that entails. And, and the, the feeling is that you, you need one or the other. If you, if you have strong families, you're going to have a lot of kids. Now, Lurton Sands enters, and he wants to know why his Jiffy Scuttler is not being fixed on top of all his other problems. So, you know, so we're introduced right away to Lurton Sands. Now, why does he have this Jiffy Scuttler, and why is this such an important point? We'll learn later on. The next scene is Jim Briskin scolding his campaign manager, Sal Heim, about their strategy on the BIP crisis. Briskin knows that it's not likely that he can solve it. He's a bit of a cynic here. Um, now, it's the cornerstone of his campaign, however, and he's running out of time to, to, to kind of put up or shut up about this promise. Um, I guess it's like if, if Trump had to admit right before his election that building the wall is impossible. You know, it's, it's that kind of crisis for him. Heim replies about Briston's mistakes, such as supporting the closing down of the Golden Door, which Heim didn't think he should get into, his insecurities, personal and otherwise, about being the first black president. He recommends that Briskin speak more about his relationship with the great explorer Frank Woodbine, and because they're good friends, and also to make fun of Sands' current troubles, basically exploit fame and celebrity. Briskin prefers the speech of a more conservative speechwriter, Phil Danville. Patricia, Sal's wife, enters and recommends that Jim be just be more folksy and naive so as not to destroy his future chance to win the election. So basically play dumb and exploit people's sentiment for folksiness. This is a theme Dick explored in... Mold of Yancey, a short story. So Briskin eventually delivers a speech into the camera, choosing again to insist on interplanetary exploration and settlement as a solution to the big problem. He thinks it's partially because he is friends with Woodbine, and, and uh, who's a famous explorer. Sal turns off the camera before he can finish, though, and he restarts it over the protests of the others. So Sal, we, we learn right away that Sal and Jim Briskin are having this conflict over strategy, and that's going to run throughout most of the story. So that's chapter one. Chapter two, after the speech, Dorothy Gill, who is Briskin's press secretary, suggests that he locate Bruno Mini to see if he's still working on his terraforming project, which is called Planet Wedding. They walk out past racist protesters, which is, it's never like the center of the story, but it's always in the backdrop, are these race, race, racial protests. Um, and they're walking past that, and Briskin shakes them off knowing that it's not really coming from his opponent, Bill Schwartz, the, the president, but from Vern Engel, who, is the who runs the organization clean. Sal thinks 
Sal thinks he's essentially too gullible to see the connection, but Briskin is just being a good politician here and, and being aware of how he presents himself and knowing to, to blame this on Bill Schwartz instead of Vilvern or Engel would offend voters. Sal reminds Briskin that many whites will support his bid anyways, and he should not completely run away from confronting racist stunts like this. They talk about his plans for the presidency as well, and he says he's going to appoint Bruno Mini to head the solution to the bib crisis using this terraforming strategy. Pat suggests that he can also pardon Sands if he's convicted of murder of his mistress, Callie Vale, who has now gone missing. So that's, from the point of view of the public, what's happened is, Sands is in this divorce, his mistress has been found out by his wife, and so he has gone ahead and murdered his mistress and hidden her body so as not to disrupt his uh, favorable divorce proceedings. That's the theory in public. Now, back at the Jiffy Scuttler repair, Rick Erickson is working on Luton Sands Jiffy Scuttler. These transportation devices make use of time travel to allow high-speed mobility between two places. Again, it's the same technology we see in the short story, Prominent Author. Now, travelers actually pass through Earth's past and on their way to their destination. That's how it works. Pethel demands to know when this particular Jiffy Scuttler will be fixed. Um, Sands is with him in demanding answers. Erickson has tried many things, and he begins to conclude that the Jiffy Scuttler that Sands brought in is a lemon. Erickson continues to work after Sands insists on the repairs though. And so this is a bit weird why Sands, a rich guy, would insist on repairing a Scuttler that's basically broken and can't be fixed. You know, why keep an old malfunctioning machine when you can just get a new one? So that's chapter two. Okay, chapter three. Um, Salheim goes to the Golden Door Moments of Bliss satellite to evade the consequences of what he thinks was this disastrous speech given by Briskin. So he he's thinking at this point, I have you know I should just leave this campaign. It's a it's a disaster, and I don't want to go down with the ship. He actually thinks about joining the other party to help uh, Schwartz's campaign, the president's campaign. Now, despite a colored majority, more whites turn out on election day, and Briskin seems to insist on alienating white voters rather than, than actually taking, following his advice and, and pursuing a policy by pushing the bib thing. He basically sell things by pushing the bib thing so harshly, he's gonna alienate white voters because it's mostly colored people who are in the cryo. Now at the same time though, Briskin doesn't really mobilize his colored base because he doesn't want to be seen as the black candidate. So it's it's this contradiction that bothers Sal Himes, and he's a very practical guy. Now, the driver questions Himes on Briskin's commitment to black voters, reinforcing the point that Sal has that, that he's not doing enough to really cultivate his fame among black blacks. So he goes to the satellite and he meets Thisbe Olt, this aging prostitute who still looks young due to body modification and life extending technologies. Thisbe Olt directs him to speak to the owner, George Walt. Now, this bothers Salheim immediately because this is not a political visit. This is a, a visit with the intention to, essentially, he just wants to have sex, right? So he doesn't, why does George Walt want to talk to him? Now, George Walt, we finally learn, is a conjoined mutant made up of two distinct personalities, one called George and the other called Walt. George Walt confronts Sal on rumors that Briskin will try to shut down the satellite if he gets elected. To keep friendly with the campaign, George, one of the, the George half of George Walt, recommends Briskin tour the satellite, 
have some public photographs and show he's not against the satellite. And then this would reassure George Walt that they would not be shut down. This would also help him be seen as normal and stop rumors that that would force George Walt to support Schwartz. Sal knows, though, that Briskin will refuse, and he lets George Walt know this. Remember, at this point, Sal's not particularly keen on helping Briskin. George Walt then calls for a prostitute, Sparky Rivers, as part of an effort to convince Sal to change his mind. Now, back on Earth, Tito Crivelli is a private investigator who is talking with Miss Myra Sands about some dirt he dug up on Lurton Sands concerning 40 suspicious organ transplants. We'll learn about these later on. Myra orders him to follow up on some of these cases, especially a spleen transplant for an army private named Wozek. I guess Dick here was thinking about the opera. There's an opera named Wozek. Tito invites Myra out to dinner at a place that serves hand-prepared foods. Most of the food is produced by automated dispensers, and we're reminded at a few points in the book that there's really no need to have a no job for people. If we were going to insist on everyone needing a job, don't automate everything, right? If you're going to ins- if you're going to automate, then let people live lives not tied to their job. I mean, that's a simple choice. But uh, nowhere in Dick's fictions we find a society smart enough to just do something like a basic income. A lot of people are on the dole, though, in his books. But Mira quickly gets back to business, kind of dodging Tito's flirtations, and she helps Tito find leads to these transplant cases where she's sure Lurton Sands where he got his organs illegally. Now, I don't think she realizes yet that he's getting them from Bibbs, but she knows there's something suspicious with that. She does also insist, though, that Tito do more to find Dr. Sands' mistress. So chapter four, we're we're still with Myra Sands in the beginning of chapter four, and a couple from the beginning, the, the same one at the beginning of the novel, goes to Myra Sands to her abortion clinic with, because they got these instructions to go have an abortion. Uh, the young woman bemoans the criminalization of suicide. The consultation is distributed, disturbed by a call from Tito Crivelli. He explains that there's no way that Callie Vale emigrated from Earth, so she must be somewhere on Earth. Myra concludes that she's a bib. So she, that's the only conclusion she can come to. If, if you're not on Earth, you must be a bib. Now back to the consultation, the couple explains why they would like to have the baby. And this is a completely bizarre desire from the perspective of Myra, whose whole life consists of basically directing young people to have abortions. Now, this is back at the Jiffy Scuttler repair in the next scene. Darius Pethel disrupts Rick Erickson's work on Lurton Sands' Jiffy Scuttler. Erickson promotes a strange theory. He thinks maybe Sands is keeping Vale inside the Jiffy Scuttler. This would explain why he insists on repairs and explains her disappearance. Again, this is like global scandal at this point. She may be stored in the same kind of rent that Henry Ellis found years ago. Now, this is a reference to the story Prominent Author. So if you go back and read that, there was a a rent in a Jiffy Scuffler led Henry Ellis to, by kind of a weird time loop, to invent or to write the Bible. Erickson goes goes into the rent that he found. And it's not ancient Israel that Ellis found. Instead, it's another variant of Earth. So it's a similar kind of rent, but not the same one. He thinks immediately that this may solve human and Andy's population problems. If there's an empty planet that's very much like Earth. At first, they, don't, they think it's another planet. But when they do the star charts, they find out that it's actually a parallel 
Earth at the same moment of time, but in a different universe in which Homo sapiens never evolved. At, at first, though, they think it might be another planet. And, but anyways, it's going to solve the population problem. You can just move the people in through the rent. As he goes through, a woman appears with a laser beam pistol. She fires and kills him before he can get away. So Stuart Haley eventually pulls Erickson's body back through the rent, finds he's dead. Pethel concludes that this is a payment for curiosity and that no organ transplant can save him due to the nature of his wound to his head. The evidence they have suggests that Erickson traveled into the past. Pethel decides to notify Terran Development, thinking that maybe this could be a route to immigration. Now, again, they still don't know what this rent does. So the theory is it could be another planet. It could be to the past. But anyways, it's a place to dump excess population, right? So Salheim, meanwhile, introduces George Walt's offer to Jim Briskin. Briskin immediately refuses to not, you know, to make any deal with George Walt, insisting that his, his career will, his plan is to shut down the, the satellite. Briskin then receives a phone call from Tito Crivelli, who wants to arrange a dinner. Briskin accepts. When Briskin tells Sal that he will insist on making the closure of the Golden Door satellite a part of his program, Sal immediately resigns. Um, so yeah, I think I'll stop here. Uh, I'm about a half an hour. Um, in the next episode, I'll look at chapters 5 through 10, so I'll look at 6 chapters next time, but I won't have so much introductory material. So that does it. Again, I think this is a really good novel. If it's one you skipped because you didn't hear good things about it, you know, check it out, at least for its themes. Uh, it's not you know, prototypical Philip K. Dick, especially not of the 1960s, but it's, it's almost like a throwback to some of his 50s works and some of his 50s themes. I like it. I, I have a lot of fun with this novel. Um, anyway, so, but maybe if you've had your own experience with this story, if, if you like it or don't like it, please leave your comments below or best yet, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'll be back next time with my thoughts on chapters 5 through 10 of, of The Crack in Space. You must search till you find the bluebird. You will find peace and contentment forever if you.